1: Welcome to the Double X Scab Fest for Thursday, June 15th, the attack of the Israeli accented Amazon edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. And in the New York studios, finally, we have June Thomas back. Welcome back. Hi, June. Hello. Konnichiwa. Uh, konnichiwa. Managing producer of Slate Podcasts and Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So before we get started, there are a few tickets left for our live show on June 22nd. That is next Week, we have a special guest, Jenna Lyons, former creative director of J. Crew, all around fascinating woman who was the boss on Girls, among other things. And you can buy tickets at slate.com/slash live. That's for next week, June 22nd, at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We would love to see you there. So go get your tickets. Before we get started, I want to say a quick thing, which is possibly not the right thing to say, my dear listeners, and I love you all. We got complaints about having Ross it on the show. And I have to say, I feel like I'm not sure, June, you would have given me pushback on this. But, you know, it's it's just not a way to live. Like, you, if Ross doesn't count as a person you can talk to about alternate views, who does? Like, I guess I just don't believe in a space in which you can't debate people who have even, you know, very different views than you do. And Ross is not outside the pale to me. Anyway, Noreen, you have thoughts? I agree with you
2: on that. I, I was a little surprised at how upset people were just by the fact of us having us, him on. I think what really upset people more was the abortion discussion and the fact that we didn't push back more against him. And I will say, at least for me, I'm not used to debating people on things like that really intensely. And Ross obviously was, right? Like he seems to spend a lot of his life debating with liberals. Um and so I understand listeners wanting us to have done better but but I kind of feel the same way that like I, I don't think the GabFest is actually a safe space and I think like I I would, you know, be better in my opinions if I debated them more often than I do.
1: Yeah. And the abortion, that was a fair criticism, by the way. We Mm -hmm. kind of got into a heady discussion. um, And so didn't assert the basics, um, which to me are just, you know, among our listeners kind of accepted and obvious. But that's probably not right. You should always assert the basics back to someone who's pushing back. So that's a fair criticism. But anyway, um, I hope to have him again, actually. Yeah, we had fun, actually. Yeah. I had fun. It was a was. I love debates like that. It's it's like it makes you sharper, is my view. All right. Well, let's get going on our show. We are going to start with Comey. The strange and unexpected fellowship between James Comey and victims of sexual harassment that arose during his testimony. Second is Wonder Woman, our new feminist icon, or maybe not. Uh, and finally, Theresa May. A segment in which June Brit explains to us about how <laughs> <laughs> we, the Americans. <laughs> have corrupted British politics. That's not what's going to happen. Um, but um, but yes, June is going to teach us some things uh, about the fall, or maybe not quite fall of Theresa May and uh, whether sexism played a role. Okay, then in our Slate Plus segment, Noreen, what are we going to talk about?
2: We are going to talk about whether it is sexist that Kamala Harris was the only senator who was really interrupted by Republican senators during Jeff Sessions' testimony on Tuesday
1: of this week. So if you're not a Slate Plus member, you should be. You can hear our extra segments and support all the great work that Slate does. Okay, James Comey. So there were moments during the Comey testimony which sounded unbelievably like echoes of sexual, sexual harassment testimonies. It was kind of... Eerie, like why he described why he didn't just stop taking calls from his boss or why he didn't speak up when his boss said inappropriate things. Uh, and in those moments, Comey sounded sheepish and sympathetic and a lot like a victim of sexual harassment. Did you guys um, did, did that thought pop up immediately for you guys or did you have to read the various articles about it? When he described like the body language between him and Trump, or the various exchanges they they had that made him uncomfortable.
2: Well, the day before the testimony, um, Comey released sort of a pre written pre written opening statement that was to me read like a psychosexual thriller. Like it was just you know spare prose, and the grandfather clock in the corner of the room was was watching them. So there there was something very keyed up about. That writing that made me kind of start to see it that way, and then I saw people making that argument, and I was like, "Yes, that is exactly what he's describing here." This, you know, the words like that thing that we had, all the, all the, you know, weird advances. It really did seem like it.
1: Um. So, so okay, let's like some of the. Let's talk about some of the things that he said. Right. So there was um, one of them was the the one where he said maybe if I were stronger. Uh, what people people asked him why is the same question people always ask women mm-hmm, in sexual mm-hmm. harassment. This is the one that people mentioned why he did you know why he kept calling like why he didn't resist why he didn't say something in the moment. And he said maybe if I were stronger I would have I was so stunned by the conversation that I just took it in like mm-hmm. that that those two sentences out of context sound amazingly like a sexual harassment moment. Um, do you think that was faux humility on his part? Like, what did you guys make of that whole packaging of his relationship with Trump?
0: It's very hard to say if it was faux or not, right? Because his whole—like, there is a certain presentational aspect to testifying before Congress. And this is something that he has experience of. And, you know, the, there is that kind of awe-shooks uh, kind of vibe that it seems that is a, is typical of what FBI witnesses go for. And, you know, the the way that he would say things like, Lordy, I hope so, or things like that, you know, clearly that's a little bit of a persona that he is creating. At the same time, it does seem to be in keeping with his personal vibe. You know, he, he is somebody who is all about service and uh, and all of that. Um, and I, to me, this was super useful because he is, there is this visual, um, you know, he he's big, you know, he's a. He's a, a you know a guy in his fifties who's six feet eight. He's strong. He is this kind of clean cut, all American G man. And I think that as kind of disappointing as it is, that we need someone like that to you know bring attention to like, yeah, you know what, power differential is real, and it's not about whether you're balanced or, or, or smart or, or poised. It's not about that. It's about power differential and the challenges of confronting somebody who has power over you, and. You know, whether it was faux or not, it seemed really real. And I think it was really useful as far as making people realize what this kind of case, how it how it often plays out.
2: Well, and not just power differential, but but the way Donald Trump specifically likes to deploy that power differential, right? Like he, the, the line, I don't think he said this himself, but someone on his staff described this as just a New York conversation in the same way that, you know, grab them by the pussy was just you know locker room
1: talk it's just he he instinctively functions in this way that's interesting so for you guys it's not so much it's not what's what's good about it doesn't comey is just a it doesn't matter what Comey actually said. What's interesting about it is that it just like it changes the players, but it makes the dynamics obvious. Like it makes how who said what and what role everybody plays. Like it makes it kind of more universal. So it takes it out of the hands of women. Cause I was feeling a little suspicious of this whole conversation. Yeah. Just no, as I, I'm suspe- because of, of yeah. you know, Comey's folksiness and he's always plays, he's always just the total innocent and he never gets involved in politics, which he always does. You know, right, I was right. feeling a little bit of pushback Against This like how he always manages to put himself in the exact right position to gain maximum sympathy at all points. Um, But but I see what you mean. It's more just like you can see when it's a man who's six foot, however tall he is, you can just see the dynamics in play pretty clearly in the way that when it's a woman and a man, there's always like there's always like, oh, well, did she do something? You know, there's always a little doubt underneath.
0: I agree with you, Hannah, that it is annoying and that it you know, there is I think you're right to have a little air of suspicion about it. After all, this is a guy who possibly who knows, cost uh, Hillary Clinton the election, certainly cost her some votes with his, you know, something that liberals, many of us, have kind of tamped down since he's, since he's been politically useful in the last few weeks. Um, but I do still think that the relatability as sad as it is, that it requires a six foot eight white guy with a background in the FBI to, you know, point out the universality of this kind of awkward interaction is still kind of useful.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, the stronger thing probably was calculated. To be clear, like, he's not a victim victim of sexual assault. You know, like, he's not dealing with trauma or anything like that. He is the director of the FBI who is playing a game of chess against um, someone who may be a lesser opponent, right? Like, he took notes immediately after that meeting. He... So maybe in the moment he was awkward about it. But I think his his interest was in not getting fired. Right. Was in continuing in that position as long as he could because he felt he had an important role to play. So
1: so, you know, the incentives are a little different. I, I got I love like reading some of the responses is so sexual harassment like Donald Trump Jr. He's like, if you told Sessions you didn't want to be alone with Trump, why did you continue to take his calls? It's like it's like you could just literally do a lineup that like, is this the Cosby trial or is this the Comey hearing, you know? Um, and then even there's Susan Collins, here's a woman who says, you know, you could have said, Mr. President, this meeting is inappropriate. You know, like if you take these things out of context, it's amazing how they seem like they come from that
0: other world. For reals. I mean, one and it's, it's funny. Somebody mentioned, you know, the way that he took these notes because he was, you know, freaked out by his interactions with Trump. And one of the things, because I was in a different time zone, um, I got an email that was kind of a roundup of the right wing responses to the testimony before I actually heard the testimony. (laughs) And it was really interesting how people like, you know, Laura Ingraham were saying things like, he's a drama queen. He, you know, who makes notes like that? Somebody compared him to a 13-year-old girl (laughs) because it was like, oh, he's, he's memorializing this meeting, you know, like scribbling in his diary. Like there was this sort of tone which made me so mad, but again felt useful because what were those responses? They were gendered responses, you know. They're essentially... Like, he is this big butch guy, but th- what they were trying to do was turn him into a little girl. And because, of course, that's the weakest thing a person could ever be. And it was like, are you kidding me, you people? Like, come on.
1: <laughs> when you were saying that, honestly, this is not a thing to admit, but, like, what popped into my head was a picture of Comey in a short skirt. It's like, <laughs> why did he wear that skirt if he didn't want him to... <laughs>
2: Right. <laughs> right. Why? I mean, John McCain was like, why did he close the investigation on the emails? Remember that whole like line of questioning was so exactly. Hard. No exactly. perfect victims.
1: Speaking of short skirt, we'll go out on this. How did James Comey become a sex symbol during this whole thing? Like, how did he engineer that? Noreen, what the hell? Like, how did that happen? I don't
2: think he engineered it. And I, like, am not entirely without sympathy for that view. I mean, he's like a guy who's standing up there in this moment of incredible anxiety for the nation. uh, And he's sort of standing up for honor and truth and, like, you know, quiet quiet workings behind the system i mean he like op the the nation has like a
0: daddy complex and he is like playing into that and and he's tall i know i have to tell you there was just the the first public event that he went to after he got fired was a performance of fun home in dc and so like he also won over the lesbians all the lesbians were like yes jim comey i'm like this guy is a masterpiece i mean he's a mastermind of like getting himself in with people
1: Apparently, he can It's amazing. Dunk. I think it was like the little vulnerability. It was like throwing, just like, yeah, I would have, but I'm just a guy like any other guy. I'm just a regular old hero, you know? <laughs> All right. Enough with the heroes. Our next topic, Wonder Woman. The movie was birthed into this world with women-only screenings. It holds itself up as a feminist milestone, a corrective to decades of male superhero movies. It stars... And guys, this is how you pronounce her name. <laughs> this is to you, Culture Gap Fest. She's Israeli. So am I. It's not Gal Gadot. She's not French, much as we want her to be French. <laughs> Gal Gadot, Gadot, with the T, as Wonder Woman. Um, who was, wasn't she discovered on the IDF, um, Women of the IDF Calendar? The Israeli really? Defense that's Force? amazing. I don't know if that's true or a rumor, but um, such is it's what I heard. It's too good to check. Um, no, Correct. It is too good to check. So I'm, I'm choosing not to check it. Uh, listeners, if you know, let me know. Um, but we, we all saw the movie and we will discuss. By the way, before we get going, if you hear weird squeaks in the background, that's because Wonder Woman is saving people <laughs> in the Slate office, dragging them around <laughs> from away from their desks. No, there's some construction going on. We apologize. We can't do anything about it. OK, so Wonder Woman, Um, are you guys before we get started, are you guys superhero movie people? Like, are you able to compare this to the kind of pantheon of superhero movies or is this like, did you were you just would this be the only superhero movie that you saw this year?
2: We are both like shaking our heads sadly. I, for me, this is the only one I've seen in the past I don't know. I saw the Batman with, like, Heath Ledger. Oh, I oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I'm not a superhero movie person. And
0: I'm somebody who sees them in order to discuss them on podcasts. And, and it's, like, because I have to. And I really don't like them. This was the one that I liked most of any of the ones that I've seen. But it's not something I would really seek out if it wasn't for work. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's true. Mm. I might have seen it because of the, like, yeah. uh, discussion around mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I had a great time at the movies. Unexpectedly, I actually had pretty low expectations going in, and uh, it was real cheesy. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a feminist masterpiece myself, but not to not wait. To...
1: Why was it real cheesy? I was actually oddly moved by it, but why? Why do you think it was really cheesy? I mean, come on.
2: There's she's like <laughs> she's like grabbing a tank and hurtling it. She's like hell yeah.
1: Yeah, she's Wonder Woman. What do you want her to do, Nick? I <laughs> know. I mean,
2: I, I guess I find the entire concept of superheroes yeah. cheesy. Yeah. Like, yeah. think about it. They are, like, people with special powers wearing capes and running around in, you know, historically inaccurate, uh, like, yeah. I mean, how—I how, have a lot of questions about how the Amazons survived between the time of Zeus and World War One. Like, what happened there? You know, there, there was a lot— that uh you know
0: did not hold together in this universe for me. <laughs> See, I I did not find it particularly cheesy. I you know, I thought it was fine. I I I was disappointed somewhat because a lot of my not exactly friends but like people I respect, you know, like TV or or movie critics um, who are also women were like loved it going to go see it again tomorrow and i was like yeah. you know i liked it pretty well it's the i liked it of all most of all the superhero movies i've seen but it didn't do that much for me but i was really surprised that the, that they underplayed some of the emotional points like so one of the things that happens is that she leaves the island where she's grown up she leaves all the people she knows all the women all her family her entire you know culture And forever, she can't go back. And that is not even given a beat of emotional resonance. I'm like, that's fucking tragic. Well, she's an Amazon. She doesn't have real emotions. But also,
1: that's how superhero movies work. I mean, she's low on tragic compared to your average superhero. She's low on darkness and tragedy. She's beloved. She comes from a, you know, sort of loving home. She's got to make, like, some little sacrifice. <laughs> Wait, you wanted the movie to be cheesier and sappier? Is that you wanted, wanted her to sort no, of break down crying?
0: Cheese. I'm not crying for... <laughs> I'm not crying out for cheese, but I would I I was I was yearning for a bit more sap, yes.
2: Hannah I wanna know in this order what you thought of the Israeli accents that everyone was forced to adopt. And what you (laughs) thought of the movie.
1: I love the fact that they just, like, turned the Amazons into Israelis because she yes. clearly has an Israeli accent. So they were like, we're just going to, like, norm the world around her accent <laughs> instead <Yeah>. of, like, <laughs> forcing her to take accent lessons. We're just going to make the whole world have an accent like my mom. I mean, I just love <laughs> that
0: so much. So President Claire Underwood, also Israeli. Exactly.
1: Um, Oh, my God. I love that part so much. I I loved her naivete. Like, I thought her Mm -hmm. performance Mm -hmm. was just, like, wonderful how they had her just kind of embody this utterly naive, like, I'm going to end all wars, gal. Like, I thought that was really effective. Like, I don't know anything about the outside world. I thought she was great. And I think I just am oddly moved by extreme female physicality. Um, like I know Julia Turner on the Culture Gab Fest talked about, um, talked about her saving Chris Pine from the water, you know, like just kind of rescuing him and sort of using her body to get him out and how the sight of that is so just kind of alarming like it's so it's amazing that we've never seen that for me it was the moment she popped out of the trench which Mm. maybe was the cheesiest moment ever if you choose to see the whole thing as cheesy but for me it was just fantastic you know like her idealistic like i'm gonna take my take my british like i'm gonna take my coverings off and just pop out of the trench and hold out my armor i actually dream about that moment i thought it was just awesome and beautiful i loved it maybe i've been watching like you know Women versus tropes that Anita Sarkeesian. It's like that. It's like it's like I, I just um, um and also my my perpetual fascination with sapiens and how like um, how like there's the female like it is true that like female physicality is just like it just like brings us down. You know, it's like it's just like hundreds and millions of years of like being subjugated because we are not. Strong enough, and so I just love that moment.
0: You see, but that was also her most naive moment. I mean, it, it's it is. I agree that it is like maybe the key event of, of certainly of the action sequences, where you know we're we're all aware of this historical truth of you know trench warfare was horrible because it was a stalemate and no one could do anything and so people were just dying in trenches and you know just in horrible circumstances and they were just sat across from each other for years and dying you know in in stupid ways and then this woman this amazon comes along and just like pops up out of the trench and just like shakes things up like it is silly but it's also kind of it's wish fulfillment like this is how you do it guys Come on, let me show you how. And and like it's dumb, but it's also like you kind of want to cheer. Um, but it also didn't really like I, I think I must be missing some kind of I don't know, some some kind of synapse that makes me cheer, because I know I'm supposed to cheer at certain moments and I just didn't feel it. Like,
2: okay, so I enjoyed like Hannah. I I was sort of inspired by the by the strength of mm-hmm. her on screen, right? Like she's a The actress is a model, but she's quite strong. Like, she does look literally Amazonian. Um, But I don't think this is the first example that we've seen of this, you know? Like, you can go back, like, yes, obviously, in the modern superhero genre, there's not as much of this. But I didn't watch this show, but Xeno Warrior Princess seems to have been the same thing and was wildly popular for years and years and years. You know, there have been things like... If you go back far enough, like G.I. Jane, like it's not the only time that we've seen this on screen, you know, in pop culture, there are all kinds of women who um, exert this kind of physicality, you know, like Serena Williams is like essentially the Wonder Woman of the real world. Like, I I just don't think that we are without these representations of women being physically strong. And I'm and and so I'm a little um, hesitant at the way that like to me, viewing Uh, equal representation in a superhero movie is, like, playing by the men's game. It's, Mm -hmm. like, instead of, like, trying to get our own dumb action movie, we should be trying to, like, (laughs) get away from the dumb action movies that are. Even the feminist ones, like, this one was made so that, like, boys would go to it too, you know? Like, I, she, in in addition to being, um you know, super strong, she's super sexy, and that is not shied away from. You know, it's not, like, she's not leered at, but, like, there is nothing in this movie that a boy wouldn't like. All of his supporting characters... Are men for the most part in in the like actual action sequences, you know? So I just I guess I reject the premise that this is our great feminist victory of 2017, that like we have you know
1: our uh, own like set superhero. up the set up a false premise and then reject that false premise. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> it's not the great victory, but it's you know it, we're we're only judging it against in the superhero movie genre in that narrow place. It's so funny you're taking the Wonder Woman position. It's like do we up do we overturn the entire Order of war, <laughs> or are we just fighting? Yeah, let's this overturn exact the entire war.
2: order because all we, I never go to the movies anymore because it's all like Avengers. Like I can't even keep track of what is you know what all these universes are anymore. The the movies are simply made for like a you know a male audience, and this is part
0: of it. You get. I'm curious how the audience was when you saw it because. Um, Mine was full of, you know, teenage girls, I guess. Oh, really? And, and younger. And you know, and their moms and, and family members, uh, and some dads. But like it really it was striking how you know, and clearly it's been exceeding it's done exceedingly well at the box office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's one of those things where it seems like once every year when the big women's movie does well, like, hey, women will go yeah. to see movies. Yeah, right. yeah, we know. I don't see why right. you have to keep being figuring that out. Um but I, you know, I'm not sure that, apart from the kind of symbolism of, you know, women kicking ass and women being strong, which I know is not nothing, like, the story felt, like, the whole backstory felt a little bit, like, not, not adult, but, like, not particularly appealing to teenagers, but maybe I just don't know teenagers. I know, Hannah, your daughter is maybe a little old for this, but... Did she see it? Did she have a response?
1: Yeah, we all went together and she liked it. Everyone liked it. But the but the, you know, Wonder Woman's backstory is famously um lacking in darkness. Her origins are famously sexist. You can read right. Jill Lepore's book for the odd origins of Wonder Woman herself. Um she does not have the typical superhero backstory, right? Like it's always thought of as being slightly Light um, so there isn't the kind of fight of darkness and evil that there is, uh you know in the internal turmoil that there is there's no like it's not Jessica Jones, you know yeah um mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you want your dark superheroine, that's Jessica Jones, um Wonder Woman is clean um so i I don't know, I mean, I thought the island was that was one of my favorite parts
0: of the movie, yeah that yeah, was yeah, yeah. No, I like I mean it too, that was but it felt awesome yeah. yeah. I, I kind of would really I mean but this is just me I suspect but like I was sad when they left the island I mean I understand like I want more of the island can I just have can I have more island scenes <laughs> Can I pay extra and get the bonus island Spin content? Off. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh. All right. So, so in order to um, in order to uh, bring back your sympathy for Wonder Woman, <laughs> Noreen, uh-huh. why don't we talk about the male gaze on Wonder Woman, uh, the criticisms of some of the reviews, particular particularly the reviewer who works for your magazine, David Edelstein, who's a wonderful movie reviewer, but um, was highly highly criticized for his um, what's the right verb. Is leering too strong?
0: Objectification.
1: Objectification. How about that's the academic word of Wonder Woman. Um, what do you What do you think? Yeah. Well, we should say first of all that um, Wonder
2: Woman was directed by a woman, Patty Jenkins, and so that you know the movie is literally uh, shot through the female gaze, not the male gaze. But it has been received <clears throat> um, with uh, with yes, a certain a certain amount of uh, joy by male reviewers, um, and not about its feminist plot points, particularly. Um, yeah, I so David Edelstein wrote this review in which, among other things, Hannah, he says that Israeli women are a breed unto their own, and he's, you know, like, into them, but terrified of them, and that's the line that got him a lot of anger on the internet. Um,
1: yeah, that's why I was like, two thumbs up, David.
2: <laughs> Love it. Um, <laughs> I So I think the problem with a review like that is, like, the proportion, right? Like, um, Willa Paskin wrote what I actually thought was a great sort of defense of uh, reviewing with your libido in hand. You know, that's a terrible metaphor. but um, <laughs> But like, you know, not being afraid to shy away from talking about the physicality of actors and actresses, because that is so much of what they bring to the screen. And that like this actress in particular, yes, a lot of the movie was centered around like, just her physical presence, and you know, not the way her face moves, but the way her body moves. And I think it is totally okay to talk about that. But there was something about um, the proportions or lack thereof in Edelstein's review that that to me was just like clearly wrong. But I but I do like the idea that you know. Um,
1: We should be able to. What do you mean by wrong? Do you mean like old-fashioned or there's something about the sort of lustful response? Because I agree with you. Like it seems that people talk too little about the physicality of actors and actresses. Like they might be afraid to. Like it seems like, especially in some actors and actresses' performance, that's a big part of how not every one of them, but you know, a lot of them. Um, So in this case, was it just it's it's not so much talking about the physicality as it is talking about your own subjective, personal, and possible possibly lustful response. Is that the issue?
2: Yeah. I mean, wrong was the incorrect word to use. But uh, narrow-minded, perhaps? Um, Just... you know there were there were a lot, a lot of things you could have talked about in this movie.
1: I see. It was just that it was too it was too much about her, and it was like proportion is is where we'll end it. It, it was proportionately too much about her. By the way, the the villain was a woman too, which I thought was an interesting choice. Not actually the villain with the capital T, but the but the kind of you know making chemical weapons uh, mm-hmm. Syrian poison villain was. Oh, a woman but a, was like a, a, be-
0: a beautiful woman with a ruined face. Um. Yeah. Actually, a Spanish actress who has played a, a woman with a ruined face before in, in an Almodovar movie.
2: Right. And the implication there was like, you know, she's been so twisted by, like, the response to her ugliness that she's mm-hmm. become more ugly inside than anyone. It was like, I mean, again, superhero movies are not overly complicated situations. Yeah. yeah. I had a good time, though. After all that, <laughs> it was a hot day. Yeah. The air conditioning was great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hannah, I don't know that I ever really heard you're just, like, full on, like your kind of response to it did you like on a Yeah look to- i mean i i <laughs> i i
1: have um superhero movies are noisy i don't see that <laughs> many of them they follow a fairly predictable arc so all yes. all all that kind of dims my enjoyment i'm not a big enjoyer of formulaic uh genres of any kind like mm-hmm. romance novels superhero movies is just not necessarily my thing i vastly prefer surprise so with that caveat um i i mostly enjoyed it because of gal gadot i gotta be honest like i mostly enjoyed it because of her the sort of way she embodied the character her naivete uh you know, her ridiculous idealism, um, her kind of like fighting against this sort of constricting clothes of modern society, <laughs> yeah, that was um, the Amazonian war scenes. Um, and then, like I said, just like the sheer physicality. Um, some people talked about enjoying it because you get to lust for her love object, which only men have gotten to do. You know, men get to lust yeah. for the love object of the superhero and put themselves in the place of the superhero winning the girl. Um, it, that didn't really work for me because... Uh, Chris Pine's not my type sorry he's like a very handsome guy but um, not you know I didn't that wasn't that wasn't (laughs) what was activated I also (laughs) loved the superhero movie in in the kind of historic setting I mean that that I thought was really awesome too you know we're so Mm -hmm. used to like futuristic movies but to set it literally in the war trenches I thought Mm -hmm. was really cool I liked it so so you know I just liked a lot about it
0: that sounds awesome
1: yeah and it's also like it has a fun for the whole family feel you know like everybody liked it um people all the all the kids and cousins and people of all ages and grown ups kind of dug the them. So, it's
0: like you took over the entire cinema with the, the whole with, with the I brought from. all my
1: family from Israel so they could see Gal Gadot in my neighborhood. Anyway, right <laughs> listeners, tell us what you think of the movie. If you thought it was junk and nonsense or <laughs> if you were moved by it, uh, moved by uh, by Wonder Woman. Our next segment, Theresa May. She is battling to hold on as prime minister of Britain after losing her majority in parliament in the election last week. And a lot of people say it's because perhaps she was too dull. Dull. (laughs) Is that right? She's too dull. She's too ordinary. Um, And she this this actually was more like the Obama Clinton moment, I have to say, because in comes Jeremy corbin um who is not boring and dull but more i'm I'm speaking (laughs) he might be boring and dull by i don't know but he's the bernie sanders character so june i am really speaking from an outsider perspective here like all i know how to do is make analogies to america (laughs) because i'm an american and so um so that's what i know but that's how i the way it played to me was like i was feeling pity for her uh-huh. as I felt pity for Hillary in the Obama moment. Right, I was like, right. Oh, here comes this guy and he kind of like captures the the excitement in the air and there are all these pictures of like, you know, young girls kind of selfieing themselves you know, taking selfies while like going out to vote for him. And so um so I was feeling bad for Theresa May, who's probably <laughs> tried to play it safe. Um and, and including and part of her trying to play it safe is like not embracing the word feminism. Um so I, I just wondered and he gets to be like the authentic brush, breath of fresh air, just like Macron, like all these guys who sort of breathe in and be and become the breath of fresh air. So, right. uh, what, what, what did? How, how, how do you think about what
0: happened to Theresa May? Is it her fault? Is there a little sexism going on here? What's happening? So, my answer to all that is yes. So, there, she definitely <laughs> did run a bad campaign. That is just to be stipulated, and that's there's full agreement on that. However, I still believe that the response to her leadership and to her leadership of the recently concluded general election campaign was very gendered. Um, Now, she is someone whose entire... History is of like she's a dull person. That's like there's really no dispute about that. That's how she kind of sells herself. She's a you know a vicar's daughter who's all about service. She's not clubbable. She's not biddable. She's not like she's a lonely character. She decided to call. What, you know, like, what does not clubable mean? Like what does that she, mean? She's not like she's not um, she's not a joiner. She's not like she's not. Yeah. She's not sociable, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she doesn't she's not she doesn't hang out in the in the clubs of of uh, London um socializing and making connections and networking. She is a person who gets on with stuff. Uh, and I should also say before I go any further that I have got zero uh, sympathy with her ideology. I am totally not a conservative, and although I'm really not a Corbinista, although of course I have more admiration for him after the campaign than I did before. I am definitely a Labour supporter. So I don't say this because I'm like a stealth uh, supporter of conservative ideology. I just think that she did get a bit of an unfair uh, response. You know, it, it's one of the things that was wrong about her campaign was that it was all about Theresa May. And, the you know, so on her battle buzz, the the, the word conservative, the name of her party was barely readable. Um, And then, you know, and she just kept repeating uh, slogans. She kept talking about strong and stable government and the coalition of chaos that would be unleashed if Labour won and had to make a, a coalition with the SNP, the Scottish Nationalists. So... You know, and and there were also some. But
1: that's interesting as an image. I mean, th- that a woman sort of occupies the space of, you know, solid. That's like the dad space usually. You know, I'm the solid, reliable one. You know, you don't want yeah. chaos. You want me. Or is that not a man's place? Is that you know the woman coming to kind of tidy things up and keep things in order?
0: Well, I think one thing that we discussed when she first came, when when she first became prime minister, is that I think there's a slightly different balance in Britain too, where. Uh, cert- certainly there's more of a like a respect for nanny. And she does have mm-hmm. that slightly harsh, you know, listen to mummy kind of, even though she's not a mother, um, you know, listen to nannies, uh, you know, so like she gives orders. And there also is in, um, in British politics, you know, the Mrs. Thatcher uh, kind of specter looming over everything, especially the conservative party. So I think people maybe respond to a sort of a slightly cold woman. Um, mm-hmm. But... <laughs>
2: Okay, but wait, but wait.
0: She's the face of Brexit,
2: right, essentially.
0: Although she was a Remainer, but yeah.
2: But she took over the party, Mm -hmm. you know, she sort of emerged as Brexit was happening. So that to me is like such a larger geopolitical thing that's happening. So she's she's saying that they're going to be, you know, strong and stable while also like managing the departure of... England from from the European Union which is not a very stable thing to do. No. So I don't have the exact numbers but like the youth vote came out for Corbin because these are people yeah. who, you know, are looking at what this is going to mean for their life. They want to stay yeah. in the EU. They want to like, you know, at least a moderated version of Brexit. So yeah. that's one thing. And then I mean I'm I'm gonna get deep in the weeds on British. Get policy, in there. But the dementia tax seems to have really been a screw up. So yeah, so this is it. Totally was like uh, the the conservatives like basically reverse position on whether they were gonna tax people after their death for the care that they had. had. Here's the
0: thing though, like so the dementia tax was definitely a huge. Mistake in terms of policy and the U turn, which again has this gender dimension because Mrs. Thatcher famously said, U turn if you want to, the lady's not for turning. And then Theresa May did a U turn. But <laughs> the dementia tax, by American standards, is the most normal policy. Like yeah, the whole thing a- with the dementia tax is the taxpayers should pay sure. for your long-term care rather than but paying out of your own income. a political
2: thing. She's alienated both yes. young people and yes. old people who are the conservative base. To me, that, like, yes, I'm sure that there was some sexist response to it. There was that amazing... Uh, I don't know Daily Mail cover that yeah. referring to her and uh, Nicholas Sturgeon. Sergio a photo of them, you know, having a tête-à-tête, and they called it "Legs It" and wanted mm-hmm. to know who had the better legs. Like, obviously, some sexism at play, but there is no way that that was the defining. Like, you could make a case yeah. that that Hillary Clinton's loss, the defining factor, was actually, you know, a like form of sexism, maybe particular to Hillary Clinton, but definitely like had to do with her gender. But I, I just don't think you yeah. can make a case for that. Here. No,
0: I'm not saying that it was responsible, because she did absolutely lead. She she made herself the face of the campaign. And then she was a bad campaigner. And she did make some big mistakes, like the dementia tax, I think, is, you know, if, American, if Americans, if Americans, <laughs> if Americans understood what it really was, they'd be like, yeah, of course, tennis, you have got to pay for yeah. your own care. But um, I still think that she didn't get away. She's been blamed for stuff in a way that if a man had been in her position, he wouldn't have been blamed. I think you're absolutely right about the youth vote. And in fact, I think that it's even more about the what really decided it and why the Conservatives are in trouble now is because the price of uh, houses, especially in London and the southeast, means Southwest, means that people, young people can't get on the property ladder. And so like the whole thing about the reason people vote Tory is because they're kind of strong and stable homeowners. And now they they can't become home homeowners uh, because of various things about London and, you know, becoming a, all these people from outside Britain, owning property in, in London and just putting pushing prices up. And that's changed everything. And that Jeremy Corbyn, for as much as people like me dismissed him, was really effective at appealing to young people. So, yeah. It's not caused by it, but the way that everybody has, has pushed it on her instead of talking about other issues seems to me to be a gendered uh, response. Now, some other women, like one of the things that's really interesting in Britain is how many of the parties are led by women. Um, in fact, only the Liberal and or Lib Dem and uh, Labour Party have not had female leaders, which like, so the more left and progressive parties have not been led by women and have rejected women candidates. But uh, one of the big winners was a woman, a, a conservative woman, Ruth Davidson, who's also a lesbian, who's the leader of the uh, Scottish Conservatives. Uh, and, you know, we should also mention that Theresa May is has, is staying in power by making an arrangement with the, the, Dem- the DUP and Ulster Party, which is a very conservative, socially and evangelical uh, Protestant party, uh, which is very anti-LGBT, anti-abortion. And so she's actually in a coalition of chaos herself now. I feel like the whole world is a coalition of chaos.
1: Like everything yeah. is kind of seesawing and turning upside down. Like this is, just, yeah. this is not a double X topic, excuse me. But it's like we are a lot like the alliances are shifting in a way which is. Possibly terrifying for us. But like you read about even Macron and you're like th- this whole article about how he's recruiting kind of the most diverse mm-hmm. um, set of people France has ever seen to run for office, which is like a kind of an American thing. Right. Like you don't really associate that with France. That's a kind of progressive tactic borrowed from us. I don't know. It just feels like we're all ping-ponging off each other in bizarre and interesting ways. Yeah, you
0: know? and I, I think that's right. And I think really, ultimately, that's why I do kind of have this feeling of sympathy with May, because it really seems, again, this is something that we've talked about with Hillary Clinton, uh, with the woman whose name I've now forgotten, who was running to be mayor of New York City. Like Christine it's all, Quinn. Christine Quinn. That, like, all these factors that come into play and that kind of seem to blow everything up and just destabilize everything often seem to happen when a woman is it's like her turn or when she's running. And I think that's maybe what I'm responding to that like, yeah, she was terrible, but she wasn't uniquely terrible. And like suddenly, you know, when, when it's women's turn and when women who've done the work and have, you know, really, you know, they've got great resumes, something comes up and, you know, Everything's changing and it kind of – there's something about it that bugs me. Now, I will stipulate again that Christine Quinn kind of deserved not to win because of her policy on stop and frisk. But – and I didn't see that – I didn't understand that at the time, I admit. But, um, you know, like – it's it, it's getting me down. Well,
2: it's the the May case is particularly interesting because she came to power in a parliamentary system where it's like she wasn't she wasn't elected to that right. position of power by the people, and then all of a sudden she's out front and center of this campaign, and she's you know sort of facing an electoral referendum in the way that she hadn't had to to come to power. Which she, right.
0: she, she asked for. Yeah,
2: right, exactly. But like, you know, which is in some ways like a male kind of overconfidence. But right. she, all right. she had to do was convince the people she worked with all the time that she was, and they were, you know, like, yeah. I understand there was some kind of power struggle behind the scenes, but they yeah. they were willing to do it and the voters just
1: weren't. Yeah. Um, weirdly, all of a sudden, this is a topic for our future GabFest. Um, there are all these good women, one of whom we're going to talk about, who mm-hmm. seem to be reasonable candidates for office here. Like, you do feel like the kind of um, rage and resistance and kind of political activism of women is going to translate into something. I'm not a hugely hopeful, optimistic person by nature, but I feel that now. Like, like soon, like soon, there are all these women kind of bubbling up and presenting themselves as possible candidates. Don't you guys think that? Yeah. yeah,
2: We should talk. I mean, Michelle Goldberg, I believe, had a big piece on Slate a few weeks ago called, like, you know, The Fear and Hope of a Female Candidate, I think it was right. something like that. We should talk about that at, at some point. Like, mm-hmm. you know, should we go back to that? Should Democrats go back to that well in 2020? Like, you know, is there an obligation to do it? Uh, is it like foolhardy? I think it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah. And, and you yeah. know, as I said, almost all of or a majority of the party leaders in Britain are women. 200 women were elected to parliament in this recent election, like which is a record. Um, and so there and there are really good you know, MPs among them. Uh, So it does feel like it's, things are going in the right direction, but we always seem to stumble like at the big moment. And yes, there are reasons and explanations, but it still is like this pattern is starting to get on my nerves. Gina's talking about Britain. We're talking about America.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's okay. We love each other anyway. Uh It's all one big world. I was actually talking about Veep, where a woman did win. (laughs) All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, on that note of cautious uh, bi-coastal optimism. Let's <laughs> move on to our recommendations. Uh, June, what do you have for us this week from Japan? Pencils from Japan?
0: No, Yeah, exactly. No, Some amazing Japanese stationery that I brought home with me. But actually, I just wanted to give a little plug for the neighborhood that I stayed in, which really the thing that I loved to do most when I was in Japan was just to hang out in my neighborhood, which was the Nezu neighborhood of Tokyo. If you ever go to Tokyo, do not ignore Nezu. It's a great, it's, it's the rare old neighborhood in Tokyo and it's kind of awesome. But since that's really not a very practical recommendation, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention also. Um, I wanted to mention a Slate podcast that will have launched by the time... This episode is out there in the world, but hasn't actually even recorded its first episode yet. But I'm already convinced it's going to be fantastic. And that is the Trump Care Tracker, in which Jordan Weissman and Jim Newell, slate reporters on economics and Congress respectively, will kind of follow the path of the Republicans' attempt to. Repeal and Replace Obamacare, and um, it's going to be three days a week, and I think it's going to be awesome. And I also just want to mention there's another um, academy that uh, Slate Plus members can listen to, and this one is about conspiracy thrillers. And so uh, Sam Adams, um, who runs uh, the Slate Culture blog, Brow Beat, will be talking with a variety of great guests to talk about classic films about surveillance, secrets, paranoia, and mind control. You know, films like The Manchurian Candidate and All the President's Men. And so you can listen to the first episode and join the club today at slate.com slash thrillers. That sounds great. That's a great idea.
1: My recommendation, um, oh, you should all listen to Invisibilia. Of course, you should listen <laughs> yes. to Invisibilia because I'm I so, so tired. want to talk to you We've been working about it. hard. It's... We've been working hard on Invisibilia. We only have one more week left, but you should go and listen. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting season. We we sort of did something like conceptual, and I I don't know. Um, people haven't complained that it's too um, intense or heady, so I'm glad about that. That's what I, was I
0: you know. About. I really want to have like a. I know that the New York Times started a podcast club where people talk about podcasts, but I think Invisibilia this particular season more than anything else, and like I want to have like. I want to have the equipment of Boot Club to talk about this season because it's really... Well, I'm
1: flattered, June, because I know you you don't really believe in storytelling podcasts. So even if you listen to one Invisibilia episode, I always feel good. Um, (laughs) Thank you. <clears throat> okay. Well, actually, what I want to recommend, I kept trying to get you guys to talk about this story, but you're like, no, the Jane Doe mystery self story in The New York Times, which you were right not to talk about because there's not really anything to talk about. It's Michael Wilson's story. Um, it's about an unsolved murder in Harlem. And I, I got to say, I mean, just way to unearth. It's been it's been a mystery for 47 years. I'm generally a sucker for these kinds of stories. But I thought this was an unusually complex and interesting victim with an unusually complex kind of gender fluid life. Uh, very unusual for that era. Um, and, and just like a, a just kind of classic American story. I thought it was be- tragic and beautiful. So Jane Doe, Mystery Solved. Noreen what do you have
2: I watched basic instincts for the first time a couple weeks ago <gasps> Woo, what a great movie you. it like
1: yeah
2: uh, I mean I, I don't know I, I'm probably like the last remaining person who has not seen this movie but um, it's sort of the story of I would say a female psychopath maybe psychopath um, who the 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 thing opens with a man being murdered like while having sex with presumably his girlfriend and then the rest of the plot follows his his girlfriend, a very, you know, Hitchcock blonde, Sharon Stone, um, who has a girlfriend of her own and then seduces the detective who is investigating her. Um, and it's really good. It's it's like um, you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. You're so keyed up and uh, today, I am wearing a sleeveless turtleneck in homage to Sharon Stone and
1: <laughs> in basic instincts. That's awesome! Is your hair in a? Is your hair in a ponytail? Is your hair? In My a hair is now blonde. I have taken on the look of Sharon Stone. That would be so awesome. Um, maybe we should re- maybe we should reprise once this summer the Feminist uh, Movie Club and yeah. do Basic Instinct, which I would love an excuse to see again. That is a great yeah. movie. Yeah. All right, well that's our show. Once again, you can buy tickets for a live show on June twenty second at slate dot com slash live. It's at the Bell House in Brooklyn, and we would love love to see you there. So go buy tickets uh, right now. Go buy them right now. Thanks to our producer, Verilynn Williams, and our intern, Daniel Schrader. And remember, slate.com slash live to buy tickets for our live show on June 22nd. We will see you there. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.